Good morning, everyone. You know, when the pastor receives a call in the middle of the night that says, can you come? Maybe the urgent request is in response to a sudden death that's taken place, or maybe the need for help in delivering tragic news, or possibly the, the final straw discovery that, that threatens a marriage, or the discovery maybe of someone in the home has run away, or whatever the case may be, maybe even worse than any example I've thrown out just now. Whatever the reason for the phone call, when the pastor gets dressed in the darkness and prepares to drive to the family's house, he better go equipped with more than just an empathetic hug. Lord willing, he goes with, with a grasp of Scripture that will, as Carlton Wynn writes, that will buoy his own soul as he prepares to come alongside the shaken family and offer whatever counsel and comfort uh, that the Holy Spirit places upon his heart that is sufficient for the need of the family, right? This begs a question as we kick off our church series here. Is the Bible from which that pastor will offer counsel and comfort, is it sufficient for the need of this family? Now, some 2,000 years removed and beyond in the case of the Old Testament, but some 2,000 years removed from when it was first written. Unless there be any confusion as to how I would answer that question, let me just emphatically say yes and amen to that question, right? Why? Because the Bible is a living word from a living God that is timeless in its applicability and eternal in nature. The scriptures say in Isaiah 40, I'll just remind you of this verse, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now for the last six weeks or so, those of you who have been here know this, but we've been studying through the book of Ephesians during our Sunday morning worship services. And last week we, we were introduced to a new creation. We've actually even sung about it in the actual lyrics of our songs this morning. But we saw that the church was a creation of God's own making. And he created in himself one new man that had previously been two. This morning, we're going to, like Bill has said, and even Mark has prayed, we're beginning this five-week doctrinal study on the church. Theologians might refer to this as ecclesiology, right? And we thought the best place to start would be to underscore, to stand upon the foundation, but to underscore the all-sufficient Word of God, which, Lord willing, in the days prior to our existence, our actual existence, and for the years to come, God's Word will inform everything we do as a church. So that's our hope. That's our aim. That's why we're starting with this study of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture as we launch into this 
series on the church. As we begin, would you allow me and just kind of invite you to bow your heads and pray with me and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, please help our local church, even as Pastor Bill has inserted our name into the words of Psalm 149. God, help our church order our steps according to your word. Help us to organize our structure according to your word. Participate in regular worship gatherings according to your word. And step out by faith in obedience to your great commission according to your word. And please, Lord, help me this morning to preach with your clarity and power. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to turn back to our passage from last week. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 and 15, and then we'll read verses 19 to 20. Now having studied this actual text in its context last week, I just want to begin our study on the inspiration of Scripture here by reminding us of two very important things that we saw. Okay, so this is the word of the Lord as found in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 14. We'll read 15 as well, and then jump down to verse 19 and 20. <clears throat> For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, hang on to this next part, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now jump down to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is the word of the Lord. Let me point out these two things. The first thing. In Genesis, so I'm taking you backwards. In Genesis, we learn that God created the world through his spoken word. And here in Ephesians 2, we've learned that God created the church through his word that was made flesh. Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, as creator of the church, God has all authority in the church. Second thing, and I'll build upon the first. So here was the first. So God created the world through his spoken word, his church through his word made flesh, and now the second thing, God sustains and builds his church upon the word made legible. So he sustains and builds his church upon the word made legible, and I could even use the word readable. Right? I'm pointing to the Word. So, His spoken Word is what He used to create the world. His Word made flesh is what He used to create His church. And He builds His church upon the foundations of His Word made legible. God's Word. Let me add a couple of things here. 
The church is not a building. It's a people who are united in Christ, fitted around and joined together into Jesus, our head. In the late 1800s, a Baptist theologian explained that a Christian church is an assembly, like we've gathered, it's an assembly of believers in Christ, organized into a body according to the Holy Scriptures for the worship and the service of God. The foundations upon which the church is being built, we've read this in our passage, we've sung about it already, but the foundations upon which the church is being built was laid, were laid, I should say, by those whom God inspired to write both the Old and the New Testament. So from our passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, this is what's being spoken of. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. Now listen, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We dealt with that last week. What I'm wanting to point out to you now is the foundation upon which we stand and, and have and receive our marching orders as believers and the church is that foundation of the word received and shared through the apostles and the prophets. John Stott, pastor, he's now the Lord now, but a pastor in England for many years, put it this way. I find this to be helpful. God's new creation is as dependent upon his word as his old creation. Not only has he brought it into being by his word, but he maintains and sustains it, directs and sanctifies it, he reforms and renews it through the same word. Now, the word of God is, I like what he says here, the scepter by which Christ rules the church, and it is the food with which he nourishes it. Again, it's a fair question to ask. What is it about this manuscript that was penned by men over thousands, hundreds of years, thousands of years, that gives it the sufficiency and authority to do all that that screen just said in front of you? Well, to address that, or to begin to, I'd like to ask you to turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And let's think about that question through the lens of Scripture itself. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. If you knew where I was going, that's a good thing because this is kind of the 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 passage to go to, to to hear about the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17, That the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The word upon which the church relies are two things, is two things from this passage. It's inspired and it's useful. It's inspired and it's useful. We'll look at these one at a time. First off, God's word is inspired. The text says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now to reiterate that, I just want to make this statement. The origin of the scriptures, all scriptures, according to Paul here to Timothy, the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, the origin of all scriptures is God. This has been under attack since the beginning of time. Where the ESV, which I'm reading from, uses the language, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The New American Standard, which I cut my teeth on in studying the Scriptures, it actually uses the language, all Scripture is inspired by God. Regardless of the language, the point that Paul is stressing to the young Timothy pastoral protege of his remains. The human words that are read in our Bibles are also God's words and are, as Carlton Wynn stresses, these words are a verbal reflection of his divine character. They are a verbal expression, and a verbal reflection, I should say, of his divine character. Again, I want to say and stress, God exercises complete authority over his creation. And the Bible, it does not need to look to any human source or any human school of logic to provide its content or to validate its authenticity or its authority. In other words, Scripture is self-authenticating. It stands alone. In the same way that God is self-authenticating, I'm sorry, self-sustaining, He needs no other source to sustain His being, Scripture is also self-authenticating. But the ESV's language of breathed out by God, it brings a visual, a, a visual aid to my mind that I hope is helpful to you as well. You know, we're, we're in this building project, our family is, and um, so we're in the middle of watching our house go up and, and adding things to it ourselves and cleaning up and doing all these things and putting our eyes, making sure that the subcontractors who say they're going to do something are doing something, right? So um, the shingles were to be put on the house in basically in a matter of a day, right? And I thought, well, I'll have time to go down there later in the day to check on them and visit with them. And by the time I pulled down this gravel driveway to the house, I mean, it's almost finished. I'm, I'm looking up at the ridge of our house to one man who is walking the ridge of this house. And with the hum of generators off into the background, he has a hose that's going from that some hum of that generator to a large gun in his hand. And he's walking along the ridge of this house rolling out ridge vent, and with every step he takes, he's going, bow, 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 bow. And I was just thinking, 
he's not make, he's make, probably making a lot of our money, but he ain't making enough to be walking on top of that ridge up there and just just going bam, 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 bam. And I, I cannot assure you that all of the nails went where they should have gone, but I can tell you they went powerfully and quickly. But that nail gun, powered by the generator, was utilizing compressed air to cause that thing to fire out nails of that thing. And, and I've always been taken by that. I've used those pneumatic hammers in the past that is, is a word from which the word breath comes. In, in the scriptures, pneuma refers to spirit. It can also refer to breathed, breath, right? So when you take the words God breathe and squish it together to form a word, you're hearing the mechanics of what happened to constitute the inspiration of Scripture, right? So all of the Scripture that we have has been breathed out by God Himself. The words of our text were not dictated by God, but they were breathed out by Him, and the instrument by which they were written down were the the pen of the apostles and the prophets. This ensures that what we have in our hands is not the words of man, but the very words of God Himself. This becomes extremely important to you. Us. When we're tempted as a church to do something that is in accord with the culture that might not be in accord to the Scriptures. Right? So we're in temptations in our personal lives or in our family lives or even in our church life might draw us to conclude that this next step is the wise step because A, it's what everybody's doing or B, it keeps me out of trouble with the government or C, and you keep on the thing. You want to know that the decisions that you're making are based upon something that didn't come from the cunning of man right? or the wisdom and logic of man. You want to know that the words are not man's, but breathed out by God in the same way that that nail gun held by that guy was being powered by the breath and air being generated through that generator and pneumatic hammer. The words of this text are God's alone. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Pastor John Phillips writes these words, Just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam's body, He breathed His own divine life into the very words of Scripture. Not just some Scripture, but all Scripture. So before I move on to our second point, which is all Scripture is useful, um, let me say something else about the inspiration of Scripture and the, and the scope of inspiration throughout all of Scripture. Okay? The first being this. It's just an additional word that I want to share about the inspiration of Scripture. And to do so, I want to ask you to turn over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. And thank you for your patience with me as we do something a little uncharacteristic, and that's bounce all over the place like we're doing this morning. Second Peter chapter 1. In this passage, Peter 
is reinforcing, or, you know, we have the compilation of this so we can make this statement that Peter reinforces in this passage what Paul is saying in the passage we've just looked at. Um, And Peter provides us some clues as to how God produced the Scriptures. In his letter, Peter, 2 Peter, is letting his readers know that as one of those apostles and the apostles collectively, they did not share about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ by some cleverly devised myth or some power of cunning, but quite on the contrary, the things that they shared, they shared from their own eyewitness testimony. Check this out in verse 16 of chapter 1, 2 Peter. I'll read 16, 17, and 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. I'm trying to reiterate the impact of the word born there. We've seen it twice already. Born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I was either 15 or 16 years old. I don't remember which, but I remember exactly what country I was in, the village I was in, outside of what city. So I'm a 15 to 16 year old kid with my parents and another group of believers from all over the United States who had converged in on the Samana Peninsula in the Dominican Republic. It may be my first or second experience on, on mission trip with my parents. And having walked from village to village to village, um, uh, praying with people and praying over people and letting them know about services that were going to be taking place later on that evening. Uh, we entered into a village. I'm a kid. Um, and my dad and some other men were asked to come back to a, a, a small home. And by home, I mean uh, a doorless one-room structure in the back of the village where uh, a young lady or a young gentleman, forgive me, was in the bed, on top of the bed, basically. And through a translator, my dad and some of the other men learned of his physical ailment, um, the likes of which would just shock you to hear the, the, the full telling of this story. Um, but what they found was a, 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 a guy who's... Uh, I even hesitate because of the, the, the nature of this, but his, his legs were not the same length and it had impacted and impaired his ability to walk. And I'm sure other complications, but that was the one that I noticed. Upon hearing these things, uh, the men in that group, and I'm, I'm in the room, but I'm kind of a little bit behind, um, approached the gentleman and laid hands on him and prayed and asked God to intervene. And healed dramatically. And as any uh, 15-year-old kid would do, um, while others were praying with their eyes closed, I was praying with my eyes open. (laughs) 
but we saw dramatic evidence of a change take place right in front of our face. The likes of which, if I'm you, would be hard to swallow. But as one who was standing there in that hot, sweat-soaked little hut of a place, um, radically impacted my confidence in the presence of God, the existence of God, the power and ability of God, and it was one of those tools that God used as an act of grace to shape me to understand that God is able. It would not be difficult for you to convince me just how unbelievable the testimony was had I told you all the details of it. But no one could convince me that it didn't happen. Why? I'm a physical eyewitness in that room. 2,000 years ago, Peter was an eyewitness to things far more incredible. Right? Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 18, it's as if Peter is covering every base in laying out his case. Saying things like, have you questions about God? Or whether He really exists? Have you got questions about Jesus? Have you got questions about the way that God the Father honored and glorified Jesus? Take it from us. We were eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus with our own eyes. We touched Jesus with our own hands, which John will say in, in 1 John chapter 1. We heard the Father speak to Him with our own ears. Ask us. But even though Nothing can take away what we witnessed. We have something even better, Peter writes. We have something even more sure. Something more fully confirmed. That's what's going on in verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him only, I'm sorry, on the holy mountain. But now listen to what he continues to say in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp, I'm sorry, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack this just a second because it, it reiterates what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy. God used man, watch this, as the instruments through whom he spoke. Now verse 21 says this, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. Notice now at the end of verse 21, because there we learn, and you just sang about it, I think in the second verse that Rich and Mark led us through, at the end of verse 21, because there we learn that the Holy, it was the Holy Spirit that, listen to this, carried them along whether you use the word carried them along 
or bore, B-O-R-E, them along makes no difference. Consider this. Consider Jesus after he's just been flogged unmercifully and um, he is making his way from there to Golgotha where he would eventually be, in a matter of minutes, be crucified as our substitute for sin he did not commit, but what he willingly took upon himself so that he could stand in as our substitute. Consider his journey from the place where he was tried and convicted and, and flogged before getting there, and then consider the path from there to there. What did he do? He carried the cross. However he carried it, I don't know how he carried it, but he bore it upon his shoulder, right? I'd like that visual to be in your mind for this reason. He bore the cross physically, the same way that the Holy Spirit bore, carried, the authors of the Holy Scripture. Think of, I'm about to read you something, and I think Xander's going to put it on the screen, and it has the potential of being a little bit confusing. I'm giving you a little warning, because you'll hear language, it's older language, bearer, um, that which was bared, and you got to kind of hang with me for a second, because in his book, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, B.B. Warfield makes very helpful what's going on here um, related to the Holy Spirit carrying along those who would write the Scriptures out for our behalf. Here's what it says. What is born... B-O-R-N-E. What is born is taken up by the bearer and conveyed by the bearer's power, not its own, to the bearer's goal, not its own. Then he translates himself. The men who spoke from God are here declared, therefore to have been taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought by his power to the goal of his choosing. The things which they spoke under this operation of the Spirit were therefore his things, not theirs. The only reason I'm potentially boring you with this information, and I hope it's not, but is to reiterate the confidence that you can have in the Scriptures, that it's not the imaginative workings of man, but it is the very Word of God Himself. There is, there is credence for you to investigate clearly the makings and the, how we have the Scriptures that we have, but at the end of it all, I hope from the Word itself you will grow in your confidence to know that the word that we read, these human words, are God's words. I opened up by asking this question this morning. I opened up this message. Is the Bible from which the pastor who's called in the middle of the night or who stands behind this pulpit offering counsel and comfort, is the Bible sufficient for the need of the family he's going to minister with now some 2,000 years removed 
Why did I say yes emphatically? Because this Bible does not contain the words of men, but the inspired Word of God. With the express purpose of revealing His Son to us. Think about John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, where Jesus offers this up to us when He says these words. This is Jesus speaking. You know, you search the Scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me, Jesus said. And you're unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. Jump backwards with me to back to our original text, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'd like to touch on this last point. We've seen how God's Word is inspired. I just want to take a moment to show you how God's Word is also useful. The verse started with, all Scripture is. What we just saw is breathed out by God and then the word and. So let's kind of skip over that middle part and say it this way. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You need not discount this as not being applicable to you because Paul's written it to a pastor. Through writing it to the pastor, he is also saying the same resource that the Scripture is for him is for all believers in Jesus. The Scriptures are vital for our individual spiritual growth. From here we see that Scripture is useful and I'm not going to kind of dissect verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3, but I'll just kind of abbreviate this by saying this. Here we see that the Scripture is useful for teaching us what is right, for teaching us what is not right, for teaching us how to get right, and for teaching us how to stay right. I hope you're familiar with the Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards. But one of his favorite metaphors that he would use for the Bible was the word treasure. He saw the Bible as a treasure that was far greater than any one of gold or pearls. I've already shared with you from Jesus' words where he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's them that testify about me. How could anything that points us to Jesus from every angle be anything less than a treasure? And if we realized as believers today, if we realized the treasure that truly is, would, we not re- would it not receive from us our greatest priority and attention? That's not a guilt question. It's just a, a statement that this that we have, the, the verbal reflection of God's character breathed out by the Spirit of God and given to us to point us to Jesus 
is the greatest treasure that we could ever have. Kent Hughes tells a story, Pastor Kent Hughes, a story um, of Bertha Adams. Bertha Adams died from malnutrition in Florida in 1976. I was six years old. Her neighbors testified to her begging for food at their doors, and her clothes all came from the Salvation Army. But when her home was investigated after her death, two keys were discovered to safety deposit box that contained stocks, bonds, securities, and cash that totaled over a million dollars. And think about a million dollars in 1976. Treasure. May we not live as in abject poverty of soul when the great remedy, the great treasure, is at most of our fingertips waiting to be applied. I will tell you the content is countercultural. I will tell you it will, it will bring upon demands on your life equal to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the call to come and follow Christ is a call to come and die. And that's this call. But it is life and breath. It is water that refreshes. And it is food that satisfies. Yes, the Scriptures are vital to our individual spiritual growth. And the second thing that I want to point out as I close here, the Scriptures are vital for our local church's health. I wholeheartedly affirm that the Bible informs us on everything needed for our church to function and thrive. It may not tell us what neighborhood in which to look for our future permanent dwelling, but it definitely speaks to all matters related to what Jesus has called His bride to be. What we are to do. The Great Commission. What we are to believe the gospel, how we are to worship. Not stylistically, but how we are to worship. From, from calls to worship, from the public reading of Scripture, from prayers of confession and intercession, from the singing of hymns and songs and spiritual songs that reiterate and remind us to rehearse the gospel in our life, from the generous financial giving to the preaching of God's Word, to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, in the celebration around the waters of baptism, it instructs us how the family of God is to worship within the Bible. This Bible informs us why we do what we do. Why in the world would we practice something like church discipline? How would we organize ourselves? What do we mean by Elder-led congregationalism. What, what are we talking about when, when we say Jesus has commanded us to make disciples? How do we do that? There are answers for all these questions that come from the Scripture. 
In the same way that the Bible is vital for your personal growth, as you take it in, as you memorize it, and as you meditate upon it, it also orders the steps of the church. For the church that seeks and desires to walk in spiritual health. So over the next four weeks, we'll address different aspects of the doctrine of the church. We won't cover everything in the Bible that the Bible has to say about the church any more than a single message on the inspiration of Scripture can do anything but scratch the surface on such a bottomless subject. We did think, and when I say we, I mean your, your pastors, Pastor Bill, Pastor Mark, and myself. We thought, however, that the best place to start a study on the church was to nail down why her, the church, why her instruction book is sufficient trustworthy, and most useful. Let me conclude this by saying this. And this is my physical hint. Close. It has not been my aim this morning to challenge you to prioritize your time in reading, memorizing, and meditating on God's Word. But I don't know how we could talk about the inspiration of God's Word without also issuing the call for you to do so. Don't have within your possession the greatest treasure and try to exist in abject poverty of soul. Eat it. Drink it. Marinate yourself, your marriage, your family, your children in it. And trust the Spirit to do what He's going to do in you and through you as a result. So that you can be transformed through the renewing of your mind, which comes through the Word being applied by the Spirit. So as together, and by together I mean our church, we take great pains to align the life beliefs, and mission of our church with the Bible. I implore you, believer, friends, family, don't live as if you're in abject poverty of soul when the great remedy, the great treasure is at most of our fingertips waiting to be applied. Drink deeply. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You spoke us to existence through Your spoken Word. You created Your bride through Your Word made flesh. You sustain, lead, and feed Your bride through this Word made legible. So Lord, increase our taste for it. Give us wisdom so as to know not only how to apply it, but how to walk into it as we're building the infrastructure of Redeemer Fellowship Baptist Church. May we do so with, with great diligence to mark every step according to Your Word. Thank You for the patience for the times where we go astray. And thank You for Your Holy Spirit and grace that we pray will gently nudge us back into corrective steps.
Lord, we do so for Your glory. We do so desiring to walk in health. We do so for the sake of Your great name. Do this in and through us, in spite of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.